Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity. Well, our normal introduction, uh, our engineer forgot to, to put it on, but since the engineer today is me, that means I forgot to. But that's okay. It gives us more time with our first guest, Deborah Shanes. She's uh, here today to talk about her fantastic, fantastic book, which I just finished re- reading. Deborah, we're, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, Deborah, as we ask all of our uh, guests, first tell us a little bit about yourself personally before we get into the book. And you, and but first, tell us the title of your book and how you got to to write it. The title of the book is Out Front. How Women Can Become Engaging, Memorable, and Fearless Speakers. And it took me nine years to write because while I was writing the book, I was coaching and training hundreds, perhaps thousands of women who are talented professionals and executives but held themselves back because they either were reticent or refused to speak publicly. And that made me crazy because these are talented professionals that really could never achieve what was possible simply because they didn't want to speak publicly. They didn't want to be out front. Well, that's interesting. But um, you were a a director before you started everything else. Tell us a little bit about your background. Yes, I ran the only female-based production company in the Bay Area for nine years. And I, I loved producing and directing films and video. In terms of the, the industry in L.A., it doesn't support older women, anyone over 25, anyone over 30. So I changed, and, and really my partner David Booth and I formed the company Eloquy, to coach and train executives in presentation and communication skills. What prompted me to finally finish out front was that two years ago I had open heart surgery. It was, it was a rude awakening. And after the surgery, I said, two things are on my bucket list. I want to hike, hike the mountains in the Andes in Patagonia, and I want to finish the book out front for women. And I have to tell you, Don, it was a lot easier to hike those mountains, which I did four months after surgery, than it was to finish the book. Well, that's what most authors say. Everybody says, well, I can write a book until they sit down and try to do it. Then then you realize it's it's very. But now let's get into this subject because I I found the book and what you said uh, fascinating and uh, I've noticed it over the years. Um, in, in today's world, um, senior executives are expected to go out and talk to all sorts of audiences, from uh, yeah. starting with the boards, etc. And um, um, a recent New York Times article said one of the biggest handicaps for uh, women to become senior executives is the fact that they have poor uh, speaking skills in front of audiences. What are some of the um, the drawbacks women have um, in general to, to being speakers? 
there are external factors at play, which we talked about earlier, but there's internal factors. Women believe that if they're not an expert, they don't deserve to speak on a subject. They also are plagued, we also are plagued by a perfection syndrome. That's why we often research, write out, memorize, or read our text, which of course does not engage an audience and gives us poor marks as speakers. The other thing I've seen, Don, is that women believe an audience is judging them harshly, which is the farthest from the truth. An audience wants you to be good. They want to take away something of value. And the interesting thing about all of these factors, perfection and expertise and and the fear of, of negative judgment, is that there are practical skills and techniques that women can learn to change those concepts into positive, forceful, energized Ooh, ways of dealing with it. Well, um, uh, well, that's my phone. Uh, as I say, they'll have an engineer today. Uh, but before we go on, you said there were uh, internal factors. But what are some of the in- external factors that prevent women before we go on to other subject? Good. External factors are believing that a man who is... Uh, shows leadership qualities, is ambitious, a woman is seen as aggressive. External factors are there are very few women on boards uh, across the country. Uh, and a, women, a woman's voice can be considered shrill. We saw it in the last election. And these are things that are hard to change, and it's not within our control. But when a woman doesn't speak out, then she's guaranteed to not achieve what her objectives are. And that's... I hope you can edit out the phone calls. There's a very determined individual who wants to uh, uh, talk to me, but then uh, it's unfortunate he'll have to leave a message. Oh, it's okay. interesting. That's a very interesting point. Uh, we always say it's a he. We don't know if that phone call is a she, but we just assume uh, for, for a variety of reasons, we always say he, except if it's the ship. But let me go on and, and ask you. So uh, having said that, uh, give us an example of, some, of a woman you've worked with, what was her problems, and how you solved it. Well, a recent example is an executive at TD Ameritrade. She's in her 30s, and she looks young. And she came to us because she wants to be a leader within her industry. She has all the expertise she needs, but she has uptalk, meaning she used to, meaning she raises her voice at the end of a sentence like this, which means she doesn't sound as professional as she actually is. And the other part of it is that she never used concrete language specifics. So what we trained her in was storytelling, command presence, how to show up and physically gesture and be as much as her content, delivering her content in a way that engages an audience. This is a woman who heads up a, a group of female advisors within her industry and speaks publicly 
and she worked very hard at it, and we'll call her Mary. And we just got a call from Mary yesterday, and she said, not only did I kill it at a recent conference, but the head of sales came up to me and said, how to open the way you opened? Now that's success. Well, that's interesting. Um, we talk about um, storytelling as being a very key point. Yeah, uh, yes. But why don't why don't women learn to storytell like men? It's the same thing that we're afraid to put ourselves into our presentations. Authenticity is huge, and women not only don't like telling stories, so they do it personally. We all do it personally. But we leave ourselves out of it, believing that that is self-aggrandizing. And we encourage women and men to use I statements. I've observed, I believe, I've experienced. Because that's the only way that an audience of one or a hundred can see them as persuasive. And so the other part of, about storytelling is women need to know technique. They need to know how to structure a story so that it doesn't go on too long. Because a woman can tank herself if she speaks too long, if she doesn't have a clear message in her story. So these are all techniques that can be learned. And once a woman commits, there's nothing that can hold her back. And in Out Front, in my book, I give examples of women who overcame years of anxiety and believing that they weren't born a great speaker, so it wasn't possible. And those success stories are what really motivate me to do what I do every single day. Um, you know, it's funny. Um, my wife, who's a Harvard MBA graduate and a lot smarter than I am, she always prepares exactly as you say for a speech. And I, I kind of do it off the cuff. We have two totally different styles. No, no, no. It's, it's often, you're just, you just described men versus women. You don't know how difficult, you do know how difficult it is to move a woman from research, writing, reading, and memorizing to working off an outline. I had a meeting with a friend, we'll, we'll call her Linda the other day, and she said, your book is on my nightstand, and you gave me the courage when I gave a speech on grieving and on addiction the other day to work off an outline, to have my opening and have my closing solid, but in the middle, I worked off an outline so I could make eye contact and engage an audience. That's what I want from women. And it'll save us time because in business and in life, no one has enough time. So with tools and techniques and safety nets and structure, a woman can be even more effective than men. Very, very definitely. Um, uh Eleanor Roosevelt, um, I, I taught a class of high school students the other uh, uh, last month, and no one knew who Eleanor Roosevelt is, but I think you no. and I know. No. Yes. Yeah, it was, uh, I was starting to think, and then I looked at the class in that blank expression, and I said, you know who huh. Eleanor Roosevelt is? And they looked at me and said, no. I, I said, okay. Uh, but 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 she always used to say she judged people by how long it took them to use the pronoun I. Yet you're sitting here t saying uh, you have to use the pronoun I, I if you're a woman in order to get, gain uh, some measure of credibility. 
Am I hearing I you do. correctly? Yes, you are hearing me correctly. There's a lot of, of uh, there's a philosophy that came from the 1950s about how we should present. Gesture a certain way. Start with a joke. Tell them, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them again. None of that works. If a woman is going to be successful, she has to put herself in her presentations. Otherwise, she'll never be seen as a leader. Now, that doesn't mean she should be self-aggrandizing. That doesn't mean she takes credit for everything that happens. It's fine to say our team and we, but unless a woman shows her skin in the game and her investment and her perspective, she will never achieve what's possible. You're very right. As we're talking, I'm mentally reviewing how I do things and, and realize that I, I usually do put myself in, in, into it. I've been a reporter for a long time. I can put myself in great events of the last century, but, but it's difficult. But now, uh, having said that, uh, uh, as we were discussing before, when on the air, if a man comes out of a meeting, he'll say, I killed him. And if a woman comes yep. out of a meeting, do you want to uh, uh, elaborate on that? Sure. A woman comes out of a meeting, and the first thing she'll say is, oh, I forgot this one point, or I could have done better. And so, yes. John, the the way to change that is to, first of all, teach women, teach us to bask in our success. Because, look, I'm Jewish, and I'm a woman. And so what I look at, what I do is I look at the glasses half empty instead of half full. And over the years, I had to change that because it doesn't serve us. And the reason men can say I killed it is they remember back all the times when they, they received a great response or they received a promotion or they advanced or they looked out and they saw smiling faces. As women, we need to learn to do the same thing. We need to say, I did great, and if I left out a point, it wasn't necessary anyway. And so I really work with women at those techniques so that they feel good about themselves, they take advantage of the next speaking opportunity, and what's even more important, if they're asked to speak at the last minute, if they're thrown into a situation where they don't think they're totally prepared, they go, not a problem. I have my intention. I have my three main talking points. I'll spend five minutes working on an open, and I'll be fine. When women can do that, there's no stopping us. Yeah, well, uh, you're absolutely right. Yet yeah, I've seen women destroyed out there when the, uh, they have hecklers in an audience or negative people in the audience. How do you deal with that? Well, the first thing you do is a heckler or someone in the audience who takes too much time, what's really going on is they want to be heard. And so yes. what I do is I, I acknowledge them. You bring up a good point. Then I give them a short answer, and then I say, I'm happy to talk to you about it afterwards. The audience looks at you as the pro, as someone they can relate to and they admire. And, and that's the most important thing, and then you move on. There's always a technique for dealing with the unexpected. And so you want to rehearse when things happen, like a distraction, lunch is served, or the decision maker leaves the room. 
that's when a woman needs to have those safety nets. And if, for example, a woman forgets where she is in her talk, she can always add an I statement because we always know what we feel, we believe, we've experienced, and that'll get her back on track. Safety well, nets I, are important. Yes. No, you first. You're the guest. Safety nets are important to everyone. And if a woman doesn't speak publicly that often, then so much pressure is on her to do well. And that's when she ends up playing it safe instead of being authentic and instead of taking risks. So I encourage women to start in low anti-environments. Introduce someone at a conference or on a panel. Give a toast at a wedding or, or a, an event. And once you get your skills and once you see an audience responding positively, then move on to something where an event or a conference or a presentation where more is riding on it. Very true. But let me let, let me go a little bit. Uh, often, uh, as I tell uh, uh, my groups, you're you're literally on uh, every day that you're in business, and, uh, and and sometimes you know we look at it and say, yeah, you're making a presentation to four, fifty, or a hundred people, but sometimes you're making a presentation to two or three. And sometimes it's informal. What do you say to, to your clients then? I'm glad you bring that up. The editor at Ben Bella, when I was writing out front, said, look, there's a lot of women that will never speak publicly, but we have to communicate all the time. I have to advocate for my child with special needs. We have to... We, we work in a nonprofit. We, we need to increase fundraising and get more donors. So I put a whole chapter in out front, simply, not simply, I put a whole chapter on communication skills. That's more conversational. It's more going back and forth. It's being a good listener, asking good questions. And it's speaking in visual snapshots, which is a, a fundamental concept in my book, whether you're communicating or you're presenting. If you can make the listener see what it is you're talking about, you're well on your way. And if you end up speaking in generalities, which is so prevalent in our society and doesn't work, so a generality might be, oh, there's an opportunity here, or, oh, um, we need to do creative problem solving. You may picture in your head what it means, but the listener doesn't understand. So follow the generality with like such as, or for example, eventually get rid of the generality and speak in specifics. When you can paint a visual snapshot, the listener can't help but play the movie in their heads of what it is you're talking about, and you're well on your way to persuading rather than simply educating them. Well, that's a good point. But can you give an example of how you mean a, 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 a picture of uh, creating a word picture? Yes. It, let's say uh, we're on a team trying to create a new messaging for our company. And so we're brainstorming, and there is a group of five or six of us. And I might say, what we need to do is like drop... What we need to do is like dropping a stone in the middle of a pond. The ripple effects will affect not just 
our team, but our customers and clients. So I just created a word picture. Yes, I can see that. That's very effective. Uh, you, you know, and normally, you normally you, yes, go and ahead. You see what you just did? You said, I can see that. That's what we that's what we encourage our clients to do. Give an example, paint a word picture so that the listener says, I can see that. So you're exactly right. But having said all that, um, do you have a two or three um, basic rules that you tell your clients? Um, here's a couple of them. One is use novelty and surprise. If you speak like everyone else, we lump you with everyone else. So have an opening that dives off a cliff and, and is a hook and grabs our attention right away. Don't start with the traditional, thank you for being here, my name is, I want to talk about, because you've just blown a 15 to 30 second honeymoon period when an audience listens to you and is engaged or not. So that's one concept. Another concept is learn to speak in active verbs. When I hear people say, I helped, or I worked with, or I assisted, those are all passive verbs. They don't really show how powerful you are, how, how, how you can really sway or persuade a, a listener. Instead, learn to use verbs like, I designed, or we implemented, or we negotiated. Those active verbs make a difference in terms of how someone sees you. So those are two concepts people can employ right away, men or women. Hmm. Well, uh, let, let me go to a, a, a somewhat controversial, uh, well, uh, several, but uh, um, how should women dress? For, for ah, I'm glad you said that. Okay. Depending on what kind of attention you want, because everything we do, our posture, our dress, our content, our voice, creates an immediate impression. So I tell women, first of all, don't dress in black and white, a white blouse and a black suit. That says you're the expert and it's bad for your skin tone. Wear monochromatic colors. And by the way, when in doubt, always wear blue. Blue is trustworthy. Blue is approachable. But if you've got a gray suit and a blue suit, uh, blue blouse, you're fine. The other thing is that if you wear low-cut clothing, short skirts, blouses that reveal your breasts, heavy jewelry, heavy cologne, you're sending the wrong message. So I encourage women to consider their dress along with their content and their delivery. Well, very definitely. Um, uh, uh, I bring this up because there's always there's always the issue we were talking again before here yeah, about uncrossing your legs, um, ah. various things like that. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Of course. One of the reasons, one of the ways that women hold themselves back when they stand up to speak is they cross their legs, which says I'm going to topple over or I'm unsure of myself or they put their hands in what I call a rest position. Um, they, they cross their hands over their private parts or they put their hands in their pockets. 
the best way to have a very strong positive impression from the very beginning is walk on to the stage, walk on to where you're presenting, even to where you're sitting with a straight back, with your hands at your sides, and then very shortly after you begin to speak, you'll use your hands to gesture the way I am right now, which gives your voice a more lyrical, musical quality. It says you're engaged in a topic, and it says you're telling the truth, you're not lying. Because if you hold your hands or cross your legs, those are what they say to an audience is, what is she holding? What is she holding back? Why isn't she open? Even a lawyer knows that when they litigate. They stand up, they unbutton their jacket if they're a man, and, and, and one of the things you can do right away, Don, is when you stand up, open your hands outward. You'll notice your shoulders go back and lift your chin just about an inch. Those are some key elements of command presence that say to an audience, I know what I'm talking about, I'm comfortable in the space, and I'm in control. Well, those are very, very good. Uh, uh, since I'm an Italian-American, all I do is use my hands to gesture all the time. But that doesn't That's work That's funny you say that. We, we say, a woman will say, oh, I was taught to keep my hands at my side. And I go, there's no such thing as too Italian. So you're absolutely right. We want women to gesture. Well, you know, I'm mentally going over some of the um, the women I have seen in the, like the month, month, last month and a half on the stage, and I've been singularly unimpressed. Uh, and we're, we're talking about some of the uh, uh, top uh, um, top people, but um, you know, you go to a, a convention or a show, and you see somebody. Uh, let me ask you this question, and maybe it's off because. Show brought up a point. You know, you you see, you go to a show and you walk down aisles of booths, and you see men and women there. Uh, all all of them want you to come into their booth. Do you deal? Uh, how do you deal? Uh, do you de deal with something like that? And do you have any suggestions for that? Yes. One of the things you're talking about, about being unimpressed with women who are speaking at shows, is that's probably because they're playing it safe. They would rather not make a mistake than do something that is considered not typical or <laughs> different. And what I love is when our clients who do, do raise the bar and do something unexpected or different get the top evaluations at a conference. Because let's be honest, the bar is really low. And if you start with something that's a, if you start with a story, if you come out and you add your perspective, if you have a clear intention and then you do whatever you can to engage an audience, you will get a high evaluation because we're hungry as an audience for speakers who are good, who set themselves apart. Now, with the booth and getting people to come into the booth, it all starts with your intention. What do you want to achieve? And then what are the various ways that you can achieve it not by educating an audience, but by persuading or convincing them that there's something in it for them. 
women and executives that have a very strong intention almost always succeed. When you don't have an intention or you throw the kitchen sink and, and, and make sure that you show them how smart you are with everything you can tell them, it's, it has the opposite effect. People walk away because none of us really most <laughs> none of us really like to be educated. Let me be straight about that. You can use you can use the details, the concepts that are important, but the way you package them is everything. And being persuasive is much more important than educating or showing up as the expert. Uh, we're talking with De Deborah Shames. She, she, she's written an absolutely wonderful book out front about being an engagement, engaging, thoughtful speaker, uh, uh, particularly if you're a woman. Because I, I don't, you, you aimed it at women, but I will tell you, I learned a lot from it as well, Deborah. I, I want to thank, thank you so for much. being with us. Well, you asked great questions, and I agree with you. The book is written toward two women, but just yesterday I had two men say, I learned a lot from it myself. So well, I, really I, learned a lot I learned a lot today as well. Thank you. No, uh, thank, thank you. And Deborah, I hope you come, come back uh, next year, later on this year when we put together a special program for women and talk further. Thank Absolutely. You. I'd be happy to. Have, have a good day. Thanks, Don. Bye-bye. We have a, a really great uh, guest now, very patient guest. Brad Finkel of Hoboken Farms is, is on the line. Welcome to the show, Brad. Hi, Don. Well, Brad... We always ask um, our guests the first question. Tell us a little bit about yourself personally before we talk about anything else. Um, well, I'm a Jersey boy. Um, my family came to Hoboken, New Jersey in the late 1800s, and we have essentially been in Hoboken uh, all that time. Uh, I started Hoboken Farms. In 1992, the same month that I graduated from Ramapo College and met my wife in a little tavern off of Church Square Park. We participate in 30 weekly farm markets uh, produced from the New Jersey Department of Agriculture and the Farmers Council, as well as sell our line of Hoboken Farms big pasta sauces throughout supermarkets, Whole Foods, ShopRite, King's, Food Town, Gristides. Uh, and many others. Well, now we know where you got the name Hoboken Farms. That's what intrigued me first um, when someone uh, uh, talked about your product. Um, now, we always ask this question, you know, uh, what's your value proposition? Um, why should someone choose your product over someone else's product? Well, uh, we, uh, we have the most glorious sauce in the ever-loving universe. Um, <laughs> our sauce was... Modesty. Our, um, I like your modesty. Yeah, well, so, okay, so at the end of the day, everybody's sauce is red and in a jar. Our sauce, I believe, is a wonderful sauce 
because we use nothing but whole tomatoes, nothing but fresh onions, fresh basil. We use about uh, three times the olive oil than our next leading competitor. That olive oil is, A, what makes it heart healthy. It also gives a fantastic balance, a luxurious mouthfeel. And when, um, when somebody makes sauce, the way to make money in the sauce business is all about yield. If you put 100 gallons in, you want 100 gallons out. We have a terrible yield. We have about an 83 to 85% yield because we cook it down. When you cook it down, you get tremendous flavor. You, you, get, you don't have to add any sugar. You don't have to add any citric acid. So when people taste our sauce, they say, oh, my God, that tastes just like my father's. That tastes just like my mother's. I never eat jarred sauce and I'm going to eat this jarred sauce and lie to my family. <laughs> well, you know, we've sampled um, your gravy. I'm an Italian-American. Well, we call it gravy. Uh, and, okay. um, it, it's uh, pasta. And as, as everybody knows, uh, Hoboken is where Frank Sinatra came from, and he was very right. famous for the fact that he and uh, Jilly Russo used to um, uh, make pasta in their, in their uh uh, pot, a, a, as he would say, it's gravy in his place, and uh, he always claimed really? it was a whole bulk of recipe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, let's go back a little bit because um, this this is a program where we try to uh, help our listeners. Fifty nine percent of whom are owners or or um, presidents um, and or presidents. But a question I ha- have is. Now you started this business. Do you have a retail? Did you always uh, go into markets, or did you have a restaurant? What what made you go in go into the marketplace, etc.? Well, hello. Go ahead. Okay, um, I'm I'm getting a pretty big beeping sound on my end. I'm on the phone. Can I call you back? I'm on the radio I'm doing a tape. Yeah, I have. Are are you talking to me? Uh, Earlier is better. I'll talk to you. I'm sorry? I'll call you back. Go ahead. Uh, Could you ask that question again? Well, you started out in in various farmer markets. That's right. Um, Um... what made you decide to do that and then uh, to branch out? I mean, it's very unusual. Well, you're in 92. You're over 24 years in, in doing this. That's, 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 that's a long exactly time it. to be viable like you are. Well, I was uh, a young man with absolutely no money. Uh, and when I started uh, branching out of Hoboken, I realized that there was a lot of people who would ask me the same thing. Could you bring some of that great Hoboken mozzarella, some of that great Hoboken bread and raviolis? And it seemed an odd thing to me that people would ask that were completely, you know, they were, they were not connected to bring the same things. And what it turned out was that there was a lot of people who moved from Hoboken to the suburbs and they missed their Hoboken-centric food. So what I did was put together oh, a small this little private route for ex-Hobokenites where I would deliver them fresh bread, mozzarella, and raviolis. Um, 
you know, once a week. Yes. One uh, of yeah. those. That's what I thought, but unfortunately we're not. We're the an information economic company development coordinator for Englewood, New Jersey, and said to uh, me, I hope you like find the right one. farm market, Thank we're you. having one. I said, what's a farm market? Peter told me, I don't know, but come anyway. I made 50 pounds of mozzarella and got 50 loaves of bread from Dom's Bakery over on Grand Street, and we showed up, and I sold out in an hour. The next week, I bought 100 pounds of mozzarella and 100 loaves of bread, and I sold out in a half hour. Soon enough, other towns started adding farm markets and inviting me, and within a year, I had a business. Um, and I realized that I loved that, uh, the, the seasonality of it. I loved the connection with the people. And ultimately, we sell to thousands and thousands of people every week. We sell hundreds of thousands of loaves of bread. We sell, you know, about 2,000 pounds of mozzarella a week during tomato season and a lot of raviolis. We had a lot of customers that would ask me, do you have any sauce? And I said, no. And they said, why? And finally, I said, that's a great question. I looked to my right, and there was Matt Conver from Cherry Grove Organic Farm. I looked to my left. There was Doug Race from Race Farms and uh, Stony Hill Farms. And I said, fellas, can I have a couple of boxes of ugly tomatoes? And ugly tomatoes are, you know, they don't look great, but they're great for sauce making. I took it back to Hoboken. Me and a fellow named Lucio started making sauce, bringing it to the market, and lo and behold, people loved our sauce. They started buying it by the case, and one year turned into two years, turned into five years, and slowly I brought it to the marketplace. Whole Foods came a-calling and said, we love your sauce, we love your label, we would love to be able to put it on our shelves. I said, when? They said, Tuesday. And I had to hit the ground running and figure it out really, really quick. And that was about five years ago. Well, do you have your own uh, your own kitchen? Where do you have it? Well, we, we, we've had our commissary. Uh, we had our commissary in Hoboken. Now, the interesting thing is right when uh, we really started cooking with our production, Hurricane Sandy came, and we all, I almost lost the business. Um, you know, uh, so we had a move to higher ground in Clifton, New Jersey, uh, where now we have loading docks, and you know, it's uh, we don't run the risk of getting flooded or losing our electricity several times a year. Well, um, so you de develop. How did you develop the recipes? I developed the recipe uh, really uh, with uh, again this fellow Lucio who had a little bit of talent. And, uh, and then with a fella named uh, uh, Gary over at Toast Restaurant in Montclair, my friend Amy Russo was very uh, generous in allowing us to kind of test it in her restaurant. And then in conjunction with the Rutgers Food Innovation Center, Julie Elmer and Lou Cooper House were very helpful in getting my process. The process is essentially the agreed-upon recipe that is certified by the FDA through uh, Cornell University. I thought it was going to take two weeks. It took two years. But when I finally got it done, uh, you know, it basically said that uh, this thing, if, if we add these ingredients in this process, you will come out with a product that is safe and healthy for uh, the public. 
Well, let me go to that point. You say you thought two weeks and two years. What yes. problems did you run to and uh, run into, and what did you? Uh, how did you solve them? Well, the problems that you run into is first of all uh, complete and utter ignorance, right? Somebody asks you to walk through a door, you say okay, but you don't know what's on the other side. Um, part of the risk is saying I'm going to walk through that door, and you know we may be uh, we may be confused and we may be uh, challenged with what we find. Um, mm-hmm. What I some of the challenges were okay. Um, we have to get our acid down. So how do you do that? You have to then hire a food scientist. Where do you find a food scientist? Well, you actually just look for it, you know, online. Find a food scientist. You work with them. You have to pay the money. How do you get the money? So, you know, my company, I was always very lucky that because I um, run my business in a seasonal way as a farmer, right, so what's the old adage? You make hay when the sun shines. Uh, I save my money. We do everything through operations. There's absolutely no debt on my business, so we do it slowly, right? If there's a couple of bucks, we put it back into the business, and, you know, hopefully there's money to be able to work through those challenges that you find on the other side of the door. Well, that's interesting. Have have you had state loans or state help uh, outside of what you mentioned? No. Hmm. So you've, you've, in effect, bootstrapped it, reinvested. You, you, you mentioned some not, people. Not, not, based... not in you effect, first. absolutely. <laughs> You're exactly right. Uh, uh, you mentioned people like Lucio, et cetera. Are they still with you? or? Um, uh, have, no, uh, no. <laughs> Lucio went back to Italy. Uh, but, you know, I have really the same vendors for about 24 years if uh, – you know, for instance, Dom's Bakery that I mentioned uh, earlier, Dom and I have been in business together for almost 24 years. Um, you know, we get our mozzarella curd from the same people. Uh, I have the same food scientist that's been working with me. I have, you know, employees that have been with me for almost a decade now. Um, so really do my best to you know, uh, 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 create deep, meaningful relationships that I can then fall back on that goodwill if necessary. Hmm. Well, well, what are your plans for the future? Uh, well, the plans for the future is the same. Listen, every day we wake up at about 4 in the morning, we go out and we do markets. So, number one, you know, I think, I think small. <laughs> uh, we get up and we go to work. If it's raining, we get wet. If it's 100 degrees, we get hot. If it's snowing, we get cold. We go out and we literally sell our sauce and our bread on the street all day, every day. That's what I have planned. Now, our sauce business is something that has happened very naturally. There is no salespeople. When a, uh, my value proposition to a supermarket or to a store, when they call me, is you have to pay what I'm charging because I'm too small to be able to give all kinds of promotions. And once they taste the sauce, see the label, and then see the reaction from their customers, they're in. Right? That's my leverage is that there is no negotiation because I have nothing to negotiate. Hmm. That's an interesting and way we're, and, we're, and we're selling more sauce than I could ever imagine. 
So, you know, who knows? Well, you, you, you've, um, you've hired a PR firm because that's how you got yeah. to us. What, what made right. you decide to do that and why? Well, I realized that, um, you know, um, my value proposition doesn't work unless people actually try the sauce. One of the ways that we get people to try the sauce, um, you know, is to go out and do demos. Yesterday, not only we were in our farm markets, but we were also demoing in probably five supermarkets, plus also at the Jersey City Project Holiday uh, Craft Fair, also at the Hoboken Holiday Fair, also at the Edible New Jersey Holiday Market. So we go out there all day, every day, and have people taste our sauce. But if I want to get a little bit bigger, I could do two things. I could try to get the word out by talking to good people like you and your listeners, or I could try to borrow a lot of money and get a big advertising program. I met uh, the O'Hara Project, which is a, a female-owned small PR firm in Morristown, New Jersey. We had a great conversation. They were highly recommended, and they basically said, listen, we love your product. We love what it is that you're you know, that you're doing, we will reduce our fees and figure out a way to work together. Well, that seemed good to me. I would much rather have a natural, organic conversation with you than try to take out some advertising that may or may not work. Hmm. Very good. Well, our audience is made up, and like I say, uh, um, your sauce is wonderful. Uh, Thank you. In all this time, we always ask um, our guests, what are the three things you've learned that you would pass on to other small business owners? Uh, the three things I would pass on is, A, be there before anybody else who works for you. Be the first one in every day. It sets a tone for everybody else. That's the first thing. The second thing is, if possible, pay your employees above what the market will bear. That will bring on loyalty and it will bring on goodwill. Number three, pay attention not just, you know, pay attention to your book balance, not your bank balance. Understand cash flow, understand how the money comes in and the money goes out. Because it doesn't matter how much business that you're doing, if you don't pay attention to that, you can go broke really, really quickly. We're talking with Brad Finkel, who founded um, Hoboken Farms, which uh, has some of the most interesting Italian products going. With a name like Finkel, it doesn't sound as if you're Italian-American. So, hey, we, uh, it, took, it, it, it took a Jew to make the best sauce <laughs> in the country. <laughs> you know, the interesting, uh, thing about, the, the, the interesting thing about Hoboken, right, is, uh, you know, my great-grandfather built the synagogue on Park Avenue, and, you know, it was a, you know, a small little urban village made up of immigrants, right? It didn't matter if you were German or if you were Irish or if you were Jewish or if you were Polish or if you were Italian, right? Food is food, and, you know, everybody takes from everybody else. I really believe that marinara sauce in a lot of ways is no longer, in a, you know, just an Italian specialty. It's the way America eats. It's like pizza, right? And every single uh, 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 pantry 
there is somewhere in America, every single pantry in America, there is a bottle of marinara sauce in there. You, you're very true. Do you have a website? Sure, www.hobokenfarms.com. Okay, spell it out for our audience. H-O-B-O-K-E-N. Some people don't know Hoboken. H-O-B-O-K-E-N-F-A-R-M-S, HobokenFarms.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brad, Brad, it's been a fascinating uh, conversation with you, and really appreciate it. I have two more questions. One, when you say we, are you talking collectively? Is your wife involved in the business? My wife is not involved in the business, although she gives me the uh, uh, the best advice that anybody does. Um, she is inspirational in everything I do, but she is not involved in the business. Okay, you, because but it's interesting. You keep saying we. That's very interesting. Well, I'll tell you why. Right when I say we, it's a habit because you know historically we've I've always been so small. When I say we, it makes it seem like I'm bigger. <laughs> <laughs> very very good. Brad, um, you know, this year Hanukkah and Christmas fall on the same day. It's very interesting. So I wish you a happy holiday. Thank you very much, and same to you. No, Brad, uh, great having you, and good luck in the future. Same to you. Thank you very much for the time. Bye. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience add profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve